Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy. This edition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by Fidectus. Go to www.fidectus.com for more information. Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm Chris Sass, and with me is Jeff. Jeff, welcome back to the program. Chris, it's great to be here, and it is conference season. I don't know what your travel is looking like, but we've got RE+, there's New York Climate Week, there's Ref Wall Street, and all, so it feels like things are in uh, full swing. It is in full swing. You and I are in full swing on the podcast. We've got some great episodes that we're making coming up. Uh, including today's. Uh, today, I think, is going to fall a little bit closer to your your wheelhouse. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about how do you quantify things when you're doing renewable pro- projects? How do you get like numbers behind some of these things? And intuitively, we know there's value there, but I, I think this guest coming in today is going to help really put numbers behind things that you can use for your projects. Um, any expectations you have of what we're going to talk about today? I'm really excited about the utility infrastructure landscape because it's so important to enable those projects and it really is difficult to value and uh, price those risks as you're saying. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning more. Well, let's invite Michael Levy to the program. Michael, welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Just really excited to have this epic guitar riff at the beginning of your uh, your podcast precede my introduction. So well, I'm glad you like it. I'm not sure Jeff is his biggest fan, but uh, I'm happy with it. It's been with us for close to four years now, but thanks for coming on the show. You heard that what, what I'm thinking you're going to talk about. You're, you're at Baranga today, but what is the problem statement that, that you're focused on? Yeah, so um, a little bit of, just really quickly on Baranga. We're about a 2,000, management, uh, 2000 person management consultant business globally. We've got um, most of our, our folks are living in the UK and Europe, really deep spike in the energy industry. Um, I'm one of uh, our leadership team in the US, and I focus on transmission and distribution operations as well as serve as our head of global infrastructure resilience. And the main big challenge that we're trying to solve is we know that there's a general acknowledgement in the energy industry that extreme weather events and the physical risks of climate change are growing in frequency and severity, but what they are challenged with is actually pricing that risk into their investment decision-making. And so that's one of the things that we're laser focused on helping our clients understand is how should I be incorporating that risk into um, the investments that I'm making so that I can have confidence on buying down the most risk possible. And then, you, you talked about being a, you know, a global company and a global role. I think I'm talking to you in Atlanta today. Is this a problem statement that you're seeing globally, or is this is something that we're focused on more identifying here in North America? Yeah. I mean, in the US, we have our fair share of, uh, of 
extreme weather events. You've got wildfires on the West Coast. You've got hurricanes in the Southeast. You've got extreme heat pretty much across the country. And then globally, you're really seeing the same types of issues. So, you know, there's really no part of the uh, of the globe that is immune to having extreme weather impacts, some obviously having more than others. But the the spatial diversity of these climate hazards really is what creates a lot of the challenge for, you know, determining how to most optimally allocate your capital. So if you look at like the utilities on the West Coast, they are spending billions of dollars to mitigate wildfire risk, which makes sense because the annual exposure that they're seeing um, is really, you know, and oftentimes worth more than the market cap of the company. Right. So it's just massive, massive exposure. You look down in Florida, billions of dollars being spent every year on storm protection plans and hardening their investments because they know that the it's um, that avoiding the cost of the outages, it's, it's prudent to do so. Now, just you, you, you gave two different examples, right? So, I mean, you've got the California, we had the author of California burning on in the past, and we've talked a little bit about the fire risk and things like that. And then you talked about weather events. Now, how do you put a number on something like a hundred year event, you know, a hurricane or a thunderstorm or a flooding event that should only happen every now and then seems to be on the news. And maybe it's because short news type cycles and it really is a hundred year event, but it seems like they're happening a whole lot, whole lot more often. Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. And I, I think it's probably best answered with, uh, with just giving a really simple example. So let's think about uh, the, the simplest type of asset that a, a utility has, just a distribution pole. Right. Um, pole, let's say this pole is rated at 100 miles per hour wind speed. Well, working with some of the world's leading downscale climate forecast providers, we can tell you the probability that that wind speed is exceeded at that location out to the end of its useful life. And so the combination of that probability and the design standard is what allows us to forecast probability of failure for that asset. And then we multiply that by the cost of failure. In this case, the pole falling over, having to be replaced. Um, and of course, the cost of the downtime, which would be, you know, value of loss load to the customer. So multiplication of those two gives you expected cost, which is risk. And that then gives me an addressable baseline against which I can substantiate investments. So like a really simple example of my pole would be, well, I could trust the pole. I could underground it. I could upgrade the class of the pole. And all of those have different costs. They mitigate different amounts of risk. So I can actually calculate the NPV of each of those different investment alternatives. So if you imagine extrapolating that same type of methodology across all asset classes, all hazards, it's again, giving that addressable baseline of risk that utilities then can determine, well, which investment should I make when and where? Gosh, I love what, I love uh, how you laid it out. It seems so logical and straightforward and mathematical and, my sense is that uh, the world may often not work that way. So let me throw a few more um, wrenches into the works here. So, you know, one, there's an assumption that we have a clear value of loss load, which is something that's very, very hard to calculate. I won't even get into the discount rates, but the other factor here is operations. So it's not, you know, do I, the question is often not, do I underground the wires, but it's, do I turn off the service? And that's what we've seen as the primary risk mitigant in the short term is the public safety power shutoffs, which are immensely disruptive. So um, does that calculation work for near-term operational issues? 
Yeah, I mean, wildfire is a little bit of a unique hazard compared to flood, wind, and heat. I mean, it is an acute hazard similar to flood and wind, but I think the big difference with wildfire is that a single ignition, the expected cost from that is very, very large, right? As opposed to saying a single substation that's flooded, you know, only the customers that are impacted or on, on the end of that feeder are likely going to be out. So the decision calculus is a little bit different. And I mean, it seems very reasonable to me that having rolling blackouts to avoid, you know, multiple billions of dollars of towns being burned down is, is a very easy decision to make, right? It's unfortunate that that's kind of the new normal we have to live with, but until those utilities are able to invest in a way that, that fully mitigates the ignition risk, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a, um, an intermediate adaptation. Um, but those other types of hazards, like you're not going to see public power safety shutoffs for flooding, you know, or for, um, for like heat, which would be more of a chronic type issue. But the main point is, is that if you're a utility, unless you're pricing those risks in at the asset level, then you don't know whether you're optimally buying down the risk. Got it. And the other piece there is not maybe not just infrastructure, but vegetation management or other forms of, uh, of maintenance. And it seems like this keeps coming up. Unfortunately, we have more recent examples with the, the fires in, in Hawaii. And I don't want to, you know, lay blame anywhere, but it seems like this is not just a story of um, climate risks. It really is the intersection of infrastructure and operations. Um, do you have any assessment? I know it's still recent, but of, of what's going on in HECO and are the strategies that you're talking about going to help us avoid more of those stories? Yeah, it's also a great question. I won't comment on, on HECO specifically because I know that there's still investigation on whether um, what the, the root cause of the ignition was. But I will tell you a, a good anecdote about vegetation management that links back to this notion of optimized risk-based planning. So I was working for a utility and they're measuring the success of their vegetation management program based on miles trimmed. So if that's the metric you're measuring your success on, what are you going to do? you're going to trim the most cheap miles that you can, right? Well, as it turned out for these guys, the cheap miles were the ones causing the fewest outages. Miles trimmed is just a proxy for cost, right? So um, they were ignoring the value side of the equation. And when we moved them from an optimi- from a, uh, a cycle-based maintenance program to a risk-based optimization-based uh, program, Makes sense, right? Not every feeder has the same types of trees and they're growing at the same types of rates. So why should they all have the same cycle time for trimming, right? So that shift actually saved them about 30% per year in their annual vegetation spend. And we're really applying the same logic to these climate hazards saying, look, we want to price in the value, in this case, avoided risk in terms of how you're making investment decisions so that again, you have the confidence that you're buying down the most risk. And also, Jeff, other thing that I didn't mention is you're making you're, you have a business case that substantiates the spend to the regulator, right? That's another really important part of this is you got to quantify the benefits in order to justify raising rates for customers. That's exactly you read my mind, um, which is, you know, who's the audience here? Is it the utility? Is it the benefit to cost calculation or is it really a political decision? It's the you know Public Service Commission, the, the PUCs who are under immense pressure 
to not let rates keep rising. And we've seen huge increases, you know, not to pick on PG&E, but that's where you see headline rates. I mean, we're above 30 cents a kilowatt hour there. Um, you know, very few other places have that. So, you know, how do you balance this logical, rational, financial NPV calculation with often uh, political realities since that may be the ultimate decider? Yeah. So, so my thoughts on this, if, if you look at what utilities have historically done, and I'm not saying this is all utilities, but many, they basically will say, this is what we spent last year. This is what we need to spend this year. And we just need it to, to, keep, to keep the lights on. There's a negotiation with the regulator and the interviewers come in and then they land somewhere in the middle, right? In this case, if you if your spend is backed by value, you now have a business case, the utility is negotiating on the basis of value. So really, it's like, what is the level of risk that you can live with, right? And the, 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 other, the other key element to this is if you're negotiating on the basis of value, it allows you the ability to test sensitivities because it may be that the utility says, hey, look, if, if we raise rates by only 5%, look how much more risk we can buy down. But until you're quantifying the benefits, you can't have that conversation. So what changed to make this a conversation today, right? So risk has always been part of the equation. There's been rates, these these infrastructure utilities have been around for a really long time. So so why are we having this conversation now? And why are you offering this service now? What's different? Yeah, great question. I think there's two two big reasons. One is that until fairly recently, attribution climate science wasn't really sufficient for what we call downscale climate forecasting to be um, for them to have confidence that those forecasts, the accuracy of those forecasts is sufficient for investment decision making. So that's changed, right? We now do have we now have the ability to have high resolution climate forecasts that are at an asset level and we can convert those forecasts into dollars of risk. The other element, which, you know, uh, uh, all of us are experiencing, depending on where you live, the type of hazard is we're living through these these extreme weather events. Right. I mean, you look at Winter Storm Uri and the billions of dollars of economic damage that that caused in Texas. You see the heat wave that happened in the Pacific Northwest that scientists believe was was impossible to have happened. And so on an annual basis, the number of billion dollar disasters from extreme weather that we're seeing, it's growing over time. And so those types of events are serving as catalysts for utilities to say, hey, we got to get our act together on this stuff. And it's not just the regulators, Chris, that are demanding this. It's their investors, too. Right. They have a fiduciary responsibility to show that this risk, which is very material, that they have a plan to mitigate it. I guess that makes sense. I mean, we all saw what happened to PG&E and things like that. But I also think when I watch these big events, I always hear FEMA spending money. FEMA's out of money early in the year. So you're actually passing those costs on to a different agency and not the utility. So is everyone really motivated to act on the information you're giving us? Because that means they're accepting the cost as opposed to post-disaster letting FEMA handle it. Yeah, that, that's a really great question. And I would say... Um, the cost of adaptation is a fraction of the cost of restoration. And that's been proven. You know, I'll give you a great example. So if you look at like Hurricane Ida that came through, um, I think it's Ian was in Florida. I, Ida was in Louisiana. So in Florida, they've been spending billions of dollars per year to harden their, their uh, infrastructure. Ian came through one of the worst hurricanes that's hit uh, the mainland in, in recent history. 
They had no transmission lines out and they were able to restore customers three times as quickly as the hurricane that hit Louisiana because they haven't invested in their infrastructure and hardened it. So resilience pays off. You know, that's one of the things that we like to talk about is the rewards of resilience. And in order to justify those costs, again, you got to price in the benefits. Can we do a quick terminology check? Because I think there's a lot of, um, I don't want to say jargon, but but unique terminology to this discussion. And there are things like adaptation, hardening, resilience. Are these more the same than they are different? Or help us understand when you use those terms, uh, what they mean. Yeah, good clarification. So when we talk about reliability, generally it means outages that are less than 24 hours. So, you know, momentaries, outages that are frequently condition-driven. Um, resilience, however, refers to the ability to withstand and recover from extreme adverse impacts. Those are generally the outages that talk that take 24 hours or longer. And oftentimes they're named events, right? It's a winter storm, it's a hurricane, it's a wildfire. Um, adaptation um, is sort of the, the physical risk uh, form of mitigation for transition risk. So transition risk, you have mitigating investments. On the physical risk side, you have adaptation or adaptive actions. And hardening would be preventing an outage from happening in the first place. Yeah, hardening would be a type of adaptation, right? So, you know, undergrounding lines, elevating substations, adding spacer cables, um, you know, trussing the poles, that kind of stuff. Great. And it seems like undergrounding is the thing that just keeps coming up again and again, whether it's fires or I, I don't know, I guess it do. Is it harder to do that in areas where flooding might be a risk? Why, why isn't there more undergrounding as a solution? Well, that, that's easy. It's exceptionally expensive. Um, it's really, really expensive. And I'll tell you, Jeff, you know, resilience risk is actually just one of several emerging types of risk the utilities are having to face. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, given the business you're in, hosting capacity is another big challenge. And so like a good example that I often give to utility executives is, well, if I have an above ground line, and I replace that line like for like. I'm mitigating reliability risk because it's now new, a new asset, right? If I underground it, now I've mitigated reliability risk and resilience risk. But if the line is the same size, I've done nothing to mitigate hosting capacity risk. So what's going to happen if you've got clustered EV adoption and DER adoption on the end of that feeder is I'm going to have to dig up the underground line before, it's, before it, the end of its useful life, saddling the customers with the undepreciated balance. So what we're trying to do is avoid premature replacement and say, okay, well, if I underground the line and upgrade it, that, of course, is the most expensive option of the ones that I mentioned. So in order to justify those costs, you got to price in all the benefits. In this case, reliability risk, resilience risk, and capacity risk. Are there any sort of solutions that you're really excited about? And you can put that in a couple buckets. Um, is there magical transmission upgraded funding from the federal level that's going to come in and solve this? Are there new technologies or businesses that are going to make it cheaper and easier to do that undergrounding process? What are some, you've talked about a lot of the challenges. What are the things that you're excited about that might be emerging solutions? Yeah. One of the things I'm most excited about, maybe less so a specific type solution, but more a, a theme that we see in terms of the, the, the different types of adaptations are redundancy, which is new, you know, oftentimes in the form of new transmission, 
you know, I think there's general agreement that if, that if we want to have electrify everything, decarbonize the grid, that's going to come with more transmission. So having more benefits in terms of creating additional redundancy is really, really important. And then the second theme that I'll comment on is around decentralization. So, you know, for your business around uh, distributed renewables, um, if customers are generating power on site, that is frequently more resilient. Uh, and I think what you're going to see, I mean, take like the Ford F-150 Lightning, right? How many customers in Texas are going to be powering their homes using that as a backup generator? Um, because they don't want to live through another URI again. So I think you're going to see more and more of that type of like uh, distributed energy resources and, and backup power because customers are not willing to live with the long duration outages. And then I guess the evolution of that accelerated decentralized um, generation is virtual power plants, right? Um, which is just the aggregation of those types of resources and allowing them to bid into the wholesale capacity markets. Does that allow us, I mean, EVs, are they a, a new large load or a new distributed energy resource? So to your point on, do we need to upgrade and expand transmission and distribution capacity? Or could we actually get by with less if there's substantial distributed resources? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, <laughs> load. So, uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my take on that would be um, it depends on the goals of the, the regulator and the, and, the, and the utility and the customer. So if, if your intent is to simply just drive as much EV adoption as possible, maybe you're less concerned about, you know, smart charging and mitigating some of those, those impacts. But I believe that the price signal for deferred distribution capacity is going to be so strong that you're going to see a lot of these types of products, you know, non-wiles alternatives becoming more ubiquitous. Um, but uh, bringing that back to our resilience discussion, you know, again, customers having backup power on, on, at their house is a great form of resilience, but it's going to have to come with, um, with a resilient grid as well. I, I, I get the resilient grid concept in the distributed energy where that's helpful. I guess as I'm listening to this, what goes through my mind is, you know, risk is always something you kind of calculate for, right? So, you know, I, I can't go bury every line underground. The economics just aren't going to work. I mean, you look at California where they have huge aspirations to get a lot of stuff underground and it's billions or trillions of dollars to do that. It's it's a huge fund. Um, so the two things that come to mind is, one, are people taking your data and then going to a certain point and then ensuring the risk and saying, hey, you know, are we using the kind of information you're doing a risk assessment for an insurance policy or am I actually going and trying to change the infrastructure? Because there's, there's a cost benefit of going either way, right? Because they, they, they probably can't, you know, in a perfect world, they could change everything, but I probably can't afford to do that. And that, you know, the, the, the rate payer probably doesn't want to see that. So yeah. how's the information being really used? So generally when we're helping with utilities, it's kind of a two-step process, right? The first is we're conducting what we call a vulnerability study. So that's basically saying by asset, by climate hazard, what's the forecast of dollars of risk? And then, as I mentioned, that's giving them you should you should be able to spend up to this amount to prudently mitigate that risk. Now, the utility doesn't have an infinite amount of money. They're they're bounded by customer affordability, of course. So then the, the next question is, well, given the amount of money that I do have to spend, how do I buy down the most risk possible? So converting that vulnerability study into a set of adaptations, or in this case, like an investment pipeline that is integrated with the utilities in uh, existing capital portfolio 
that's that's then how they're they're creating that resilience investment plan um, that's future proofing their assets. And the other element that I'll min- that I'll uh, I'll add to that is when they're replacing assets, it allows them to select do- design standards that are also future proof. So um, you know in my in my poll example. If I upgrade it to a new class poll, a stronger class poll, or if I keep the poll the same, well, using this type of analysis, I can determine which is best, right? Um, another anecdote that I, that I like to share, I talked to uh, as a former SAP of engineering for a massive utility in the Northeast. And he said, we elevated all of our substations to FEMA plus two feet. I said, well, how did you get to two feet? Why not three feet? Why not one? He said, well, three feet was too expensive. <laughs> um, and so if you look at like the decision making there, that was based on what they felt was conservatively acceptable uh, level of risk. And what I'm proposing is that rather than use heuristic based judgment, which probably gets you there 80 percent of uh, the way, use use the best climate science that's available to determine what's optimal, what's best. Mm-hmm. So who's doing this well? You mentioned that you're working and maybe you don't want to name names specifically, but are there regions of the country or the world or, you know, investor owned utilities, regional co-ops? When you think about somebody who's really uh, taken in this mindset about the quantitative risk framework that you're discussing, is there an example of how to do it really well? Yeah. So probably not surprisingly, the utilities that do this best are the ones that have the most material exposure to, to uh, extreme weather risk. So the utilities on the West Coast, massive exposure to wildfire. They're the most mature in terms of quantifying that risk, pricing it in, and then, you know, in the, in the wildfire mitigation plans that they have. And actually, fairly recently, California said, we expect the, your plans to be risk-based. So, you know, not only are they going to have to... Um, they're, they're, they're more aggressive in terms of quantifying that risk. And then similarly, the, the, the utilities that are hurricane exposed also fairly mature in terms of how they're thinking about incorporating that risk in their investment planning. So I think the maturity oftentimes is a, is a function of necessity. Um, the, the, the challenge is for the, the utilities that have gotten quote unquote lucky and haven't yet experienced that type of extreme event the design, the investments that they're making today, they're going to be stuck with those for a really long time. I mean, these assets, they last 40, 50 years. And so the design, the design choices that you're making today on, in terms of those standards, you're going to be stuck with them, right? So it's really important that even if you haven't experienced an event yet, that you should be considering those risks based on the investments decisions you're making now. Mm-hmm. Who should bear the cost? And, I, you know, there's a common discussion around taxpayers versus ratepayers. Let's expand on that. Should there be regions of the grid that have higher rates? And furthermore, should shareholders also be responsible for bearing some of the cost? There's usually a regulated rate of return. Should that rate of return be adjusted based on how well they perform in certain areas? Um, when you think about allocate because the costs are so high in a lot of these efforts. How do you think about efficient allocation? That is an excellent question. Um, I, so I, I'll give you an example of utility. Actually, I talked to you because I think it's a microcosm of what you described. So this is a utility that's in, um, in the Midwest, the uh, South, Mid, South Midwest, and they've got two very de- different geographic regions. 
One region is very flood prone, another region is very wildfire prone. Both regions have very, very strong customer intervener groups. And what they've actually tried to propose is that the guys who are in the flood prone region are saying, we don't want to pay for the wildfire plan. And the guys that are in the flood prone region saying, we don't want to pay for the wildfire plan. And it's caused a lot of challenge for the utility in terms of the way they structure rates, the way they allocate capital. And I think that's actually a microcosm for what you see in much larger parts of the country. I'm not sure that you can easily answer what is you know, equitable and fair in terms of how those costs are socialized. But I do know that until utilities are quantifying what their total exposure is to the, to the risk, then it's hard to have that conversation in the first place, right? Um, so, you know, I think, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's important for them to, to kind of come to the table and say, this is the risk that we're dealing with. Now let's figure out the best way to invest it and then how those costs are socialized would come thereafter. Yeah, well, I obviously don't expect you to have the, uh, the, the magical answer there, but it's really difficult. And this issue of cross-subsidization we see it come up a lot with uh, with renewable energy, of course, and it's a really interesting dimension you bring up there in terms of you know geographic risk. Um, there tends to be a lot of um, antagonistic language towards the utility. It seems like you have much more of a sympathetic um, framing, right? And I, I actually share that view, right? Utility could be because they're often my clients, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's actually you know it's one of the most amazing machines ever built in the world, right, is uh, commonly uh, ascribed to the utility, um, the, the power grid, right, because of how much it provides to how many people with really tremendous reliability for the most part. But there are challenges. Um, you know, what's what's on your wish list? Um, obviously framed nicely, but where do you see there are easy, easy room for utilities to improve where maybe some of that uh, antagonistic language might be uh, close to the mark. You know, some, something that you mentioned earlier in terms of should they, you know, should their ROE be adjusted based on on the, their resilience? Um, I, I think that's kind of a, a great segue to, to answer the question you just asked. Maybe not not necessarily low hanging fruit, but I'm a firm believer that you know the universal service that that utilities are providing they should be fairly compensated and their shareholders should be fairly compensated for the risk that they're taking in order to provide that service reliably and safely. And I think oftentimes people forget that, you know, utilities are sort of framed as the bad guy. Um, but what they're doing is not easy when you, when you really know what's going on behind the scenes every time you flip on a light switch. That said, there, there are utilities that um, maybe have enjoyed the runway of ever increasing rates without substantiating their spend for maybe too long. And the how much they're earning is not consistent with the level of risk and the service that they're providing. And so when you talk about you know, performance-based rate making, where that ROE is now tied to outcomes, um, like say in this case, reliability or resilience, I think that better aligns customer and utility objectives and it incents them to, again, optimize the money that they're spending. So I think that that's a good mechanism that hopefully we'll start to see more of in the future. Wow. Uh, we've gone a lot of places, I guess. You know, as I'm listening to this conversation, Michael, how does one end up 
being in the position you're at to to get here. How did you end up in your your professional journey to be advising utilities about their risk in in climate risk? You know, I I wish I could say it was by design, but when I I started for a management consulting company at an undergrad, my first project just happened to be in utilities, and I selfishly prioritized getting promoted fast over anything else. So I was like, well, I guess I'm in utilities now. But being an industrial engineer by background, I think, you know, I, I often think of things in terms of optimization. And so having, unlike financial markets where optimization is generally applied only on the economic sense, what I find really fascinating in the energy industry is that you have both this economic optimization, but also the physical constraints of the grid applied as well. And so this this unique systems problem that now has all of these uh, disruptions in the form of decarbonization, decentralization, um, and deregulation. You know, I find that just super, super fascinating. And so, I guess being a naturally intellectually curious person, it's kept me kept me uh, occupied for for the past decade plus. And Michael, we we quickly got into the world of jargon, right? Of uh, utility jargon and PUC and rate design and uh, you know uh, three year investment plans and all that. Um, what would you give as advice for people who are listening, who are right now in maybe the the school of podcasts, which I went to for many years? Um, how what's a good way for people to get up to speed? What resources did you find most useful in your journey? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, podcasts are a really great way. I'm an avid reader of Utility Dive. Um, uh, Canary Media is another great one. Reuters often has good stuff as well. Um, but generally. Uh, you know, having a, having a genuine passion for solving the energy transition, having that at your core is going to lead you to the right places. And um, personally, I think that solving this problem is like, it's the biggest problem that we have to solve as a generation. And I'm talking not just exclusively around transition risk, both transition and physical. And so there's, there's a personal sense of fulfillment that I have knowing that the advice I'm providing my clients is potentially avoiding outages and you know, keeping the lights on for folks. So that intrinsic motivation definitely is is uh, is helpful. Yeah, and and what advice for younger listeners? We have a lot of students out there, people just starting their careers, who who want to take on that challenge, as you mentioned. So whether that's thinking about advice for yourself ten years ago or a younger listener, is that somebody you, you they should go work for a utility to learn the ins and outs, or what advice would you give somebody earlier on in their career? Yeah, there's a massive suite of opportunities. You could work for, you know, asset developers, investment banks. You could work for utilities. You could work for management consultants. Um, what, what I would say is, again, showing that genuine passion and then educating yourself on particular areas that you're interested in. So do you, do you think that transmission is going to be the key thing that's going to solve this problem? Is it battery storage that you think is uh is going to be solving it and then try and become an expert in that type of stuff so that when you do present present yourself you have a specific area of interest that you're that you're demonstrating um you know capability i know when i interview a lot of uh of folks from college campus one of the things that i'll ask them is you know what is the biggest problem that you see utilities facing today super open-ended but what i want to see from them is well do you have an, an area that you're that you're exceptionally interested in and that you know the knowledge demonstrates your genuine passion for it so um yeah i mean the, being involved in energy clubs on campus 
being involved in sustainability of organizations. It's, it's, it's all, it's all fair game. That's wonderful. Well, we had a great and wide ranging discussion here. We talked about risk management framework for utilities in light of uh, climate change and other weather related uh, catastrophes um, and getting into the mix of technology and policy and uh, rate design and, and PUC and the, the, the messiness there as well. So really appreciate your ability to go seamlessly across that range of conversations. This is really enjoyable. And I think our listeners will, will think so as well. Excellent. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. And for our audience, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I thought it was great content. I really enjoyed the, the range of concept content, like Jeff said. If you did enjoy it, please don't forget to follow us. Follow us on YouTube. Subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you again next week on the Insider's Guide to Energy podcast. Bye-bye.